Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone in this world, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, and that he ultimately, even Lord, I'm so mindful of that as we go to your word this morning, that the Holy Spirit is the one Jesus said would be our teacher, that he would take the words of ordinary preaching and ordinary teaching and and apply them to our hearts in personal and powerful ways. Lord, and Kathy's right what she said earlier. You have been doing extraordinary things among us in recent weeks. You've been bringing people to yourself. You've been bringing people back to yourself. You have been reviving, Lord, as Tim just said, reviving many of our own hearts uh, to a fresh sense of expectation and optimism of what you can do when your people are totally devoted to you. And Father, we just pray that now as we go to your word, as we stand, Lord, just sort of in the shadow of of now the empty tomb and, and a week out from Easter, that you would continue to do what you have already done, which is to call, as we lift up the name of Jesus, you would call all men and women and children to yourself. Father, we ask that you bless the teaching of your word. Father, that our hearts would be open, not to what I have to say, but to what you have to say to us through the preaching of scripture this morning. We pray as always that your spirit would guide us in truth, that he would guard us from misunderstanding, that he would deliver us from proud hearts or broken hearts or indifferent hearts, apathetic hearts, just sweep it all away so that in these moments, Lord, as is his, his mandate, the spirit of God would help us to see Jesus, that we would see him clearly, that we would see him only, and that we would leave in a short time rejoicing in his name and in all that he's done for us, the precious, powerful name of Jesus in which we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, as always, we'll allow the boys and girls, after a couple of weeks with no children's church, to get back to children's church today. So there are kiddos who are part of children's church, boys and girls, it's, uh, it's time for you to head out. I want to invite everybody else to grab your Bible and turn in it with me this morning. We have been in the Gospel of John the past couple of times we've been together, and we are going to continue to be in the Gospel of John this morning. I want you to turn specifically, if you have the Bible in front of you, to John chapter 20. I want you to turn your Bible to John chapter 20, and I really do think for a whole host of reasons what we have just kind of sung and, and meditated on is, is appropriate. You know, my Actually, my wife and I were talking, she was kind of sharing with me some perspective, and I thought it was really, really good that, you know, so often, especially when we're, you know, for those of us who are in ministry, and last week is undoubtedly the busiest and most demanding year, week of the year for me, and I'm not complaining, I love it, but I'm tired, and, uh, you know, sometimes even, even as just as our families, we look at a holiday like Easter and go, we just got to get through it, Right? All the stuff of Easter, and, and you know, I, and, and she said as we were talking, she said, Easter is not something we're supposed to get through or get to. Easter is something we are supposed to live in the light of every single day. So we're a week out from Easter, and I know you went back to real life and school and work and taking out the trash and doing the dishes and paying the bills and everything else, but he is still risen, right? And he is risen what? Indeed. Yeah, well, some of us believe it. He is risen? Indeed, there we go. And we need to live and we need to come to his word and come to worship, not dragging ourselves in, hoping we can get through it and get on with our day. But to realize that this is the pivot point for our whole week. This is the pivot point we come back to. Not because our church is so great and the sermon's so good and the music and this, but because he calls us together. And even in this is just an opportunity once again for our spirits to be revived as we walk with the Lord. So I hope you're looking forward not to what I have to say, but to what the Lord's going to say to us in his word this morning in John chapter 20. And we will read the passage together in in a moment, but because... Uh, we have finished our study in word pictures, and we are, in a sense, in, the terms, in terms of the teaching of God's word, pivoting here ourselves this morning. I want to set up where we're going by asking you just to consider with me for a moment what it might be like in our world today. 
the world you live in, the world I live in, if we had objective, empirical, legitimate proof that not once upon a time long ago in a land far, far away, but in the world we live in today, somebody had risen from the dead. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had legitimate proof someone on the face of the earth today really did die and really came back? I'm asking the question of, of whether it's even possible for us to conceive how much and how long and how deeply and how thoroughly that would like dominate the news cycle, right? Uh, the requests for interviews, the, the desire for eyewitness accounts, how it would dominate social media and, 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 and cable news and online commentary pro and con as people grappled with something that, that all of us at least had either only ever heard about or maybe only imagined before or said couldn't happen at all, and then it did. I think it's probably safe to assume our world, the world we live in, has never seen anything like that. What would it be like if someone had risen from the dead? But exactly one week ago today, that is precisely what we and millions of others met to remember and to celebrate. That a real live man named Jesus of Nazareth really did die, and he really rose from the dead. He came back, and the tomb that was empty that first Easter Sunday morning is still empty today. And because of it, he has been worshipped by millions upon millions ever since, people like us, who although we didn't see it with our own eyes, we weren't there to to peek in like the disciples did. We didn't, like Thomas, get to the offer to put our our fingers in, in the holes in Jesus' hands and his feet. We didn't see it with our own eyes, yet I would venture to guess that most of us this morning anyway are still convinced that it really happened, that a dead man got up and walked because we've staked our earthly lives and our eternal destinies upon it. If we've only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied, but of course Jesus rose from the dead. And one of the reasons we've done that as believers, and again, I'm assuming most of us, not all of us, but I'm assuming most of us here this morning are believers in Jesus Christ, and therefore one of the reasons we have done so, we have staked our lives on the fact of Jesus' literal death and resurrection is because while, again, as I just said, none of us were there to see it, none of us witnessed it with our own eyes, the Bible tells us that there were people who did. The Bible tells us that there were people to whom Jesus Christ literally physically appeared after the fact, in the flesh, over a span of 40 days, and that then those people to whom Jesus appeared went out and lived the rest of their lives not recanting at once. Not one of them. Even though most of them were severely persecuted for it. In fact, the gospel writers, you may or may not know this, mention at least, at least a dozen such instances where Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, appeared to those who had known him. And what we're going to do together as a result over the next five weeks, we're not going to look at all of those stories, but we're going to look at some of them. 
Some of those resurrection, those post-resurrection appearances about what happened, as it says on the screen behind me, after the empty tomb. And the reason we're going to do that, this is just sort of where I'm coming from this morning, is because over the past couple of weeks, as I have reread those stories all over again, just gone back to the stories of the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances, a couple of things have come to mind. Not necessarily profound, but they're giving us what you're going to get today. And they're this. First of all, I've had the thought. As I've read these stories from the gospel writers of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the thought has sort of crossed and settled into my mind that, that all of those, those nearly a dozen, if not in, in full, a dozen post-resurrection appearances Jesus made, I've just had the thought that the purpose or the reason for them can't merely to be a dozen times over for Jesus to walk into the room and say, I'm back. <laughs> I did what I said I was going to do. I told you I'd die and rise from the dead. I did die. I've risen from the dead. Here I am. I kept my promise. I mean, that's a really big deal, but to me, that can't, that can't be it. Just a dozen times over to say, hey, gang, I kept my promise. It, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm right when I assume, when I say to you, that there might be more to the story than that. There might be more to these resurrection accounts than that. And that thought, which may or may not be profound, do with it whatever you want, has led to a question that I, I do think is important. My question then became, as I read and reread these stories, if there is in fact more to it than just, hey, I kept my promise, what is it? What is it specifically, and here's the question we're beginning to grapple with together this morning, what made each of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances unique? That is, was there something that distinguished one from another, from the one that came a week or two after that? What made them necessary? What lesson or message or truth did Jesus intend to send to those who saw it then and those of us reading now in them? And of course, then we always get to the question that we always try to ask here in one way or another, so what? What difference does it make or can it, should it make? in your life and mine as followers of Christ here this morning. In other words, to boil down everything I've just said to you into a single sentence, here's where we're going this morning and for the next four Sundays together. We know and we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose. Amen? Amen. But what are the implications of the fact that Jesus lives? We know and we celebrate that he rose from the dead. But what are the implications of the fact that today, even today, he, Jesus, lives? And as I said, that's why for the next few weeks, we're going to look at five of these occasions and consider what the Bible says about what happened after the empty tomb, starting this morning in John chapter 20. So grab your Bible and take a look at it with me, where we're going to to read through and then just walk together back through the first post-resurrection appearance, at least as best as we can tell, that Jesus made on Easter Sunday morning. The first 10 verses of John chapter 20 tell the story of, of Mary Magdalene and some other women and Peter and John arriving and finding the empty tomb. That's verses 1 through 10. It says in verse 10 that the disciples, Peter and John, who came to the tomb early, went away to their own homes. We're going to begin reading in verse 11. We're going to go down through verse, 20, uh, verse 18, excuse me. For this is what the word of God says. It says, but Mary, and this would be Mary Magdalene, was standing outside the tomb of Jesus weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he, Jesus, had said these things to her. Now, before we dig in, it must be noted, because it matters, that Jesus' first resurrection appearance, I want you to hang on to this, because I think we're not going to dig into it very deeply, but it must at least be noted as we go through it, that the first post-resurrection appearance of Christ was not, everybody say, it was not, it was not to his 11 remaining faithful disciples. Nor was Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance, and if it had been me, this is what I would have wanted to do, it was not to guys like Pilate, and Caiaphas, who had condemned him to death and sent him to the cross. Hey, guys, right? Didn't do that either. But instead, what the Bible tells us, and the other gospel authors affirm it, if at least uh, incidentally, if not directly, that the first post-resurrection appearance of Christ was to an ordinary woman, from whom at some point in the not-so-distant past, Jesus the Bible tells us, had cast out seven demons, changed her life, redeemed her soul, and who had, as a result, the Gospels make it very clear, devoted her life to serving and following him ever since. Verse 8 of John 20 tells us that the disciple, later the apostle John, was the first to believe. He saw the empty tomb and he believed, but it is Mary Magdalene to whom Jesus first appeared and with whom Jesus first spoke. And that that leads to a whole lot of other things, not the least of which is simply to say that it is a powerful witness to the New Testament teaching, doctrine, if you will, of the dignity and the worth and the equality and the precious eternal value to God of every member of the body of Christ. That Paul meant it when he said, in Christ we are one, there is not Jew or Greek or slave or free, Hey, saved is saved, right? And I think that there is a subtle but a very important message here in that. Now, with that said, let's look at the encounter. There's just several things I want want you to see here with me this morning. First, we just need to, and this is sort of the first major thing I want you to see in the text this morning, is we just sort of need to take stock, first of all, in verses 11 through 15 of the scene outside Jesus' tomb. We just need to understand what was really going on in the scene that is unfolding outside Jesus' tomb. Because I want to suggest to you, as we look at this story, that what was happening outside the empty tomb is more dramatic than we think. More dramatic than our English Bibles probably would suggest. Because when verse 11 says, look at it again in your Bible, that Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. 
The term that John, the author of this gospel, used for weeping is the same Greek term used, we saw it last Sunday, in John 11, of the mourners who gathered outside Lazarus' tomb when he had died and had been buried and, 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 and of course, is gone. Now, Jesus is going to raise him from the dead and all the rest. But, but specifically, what the term that John used here means, it's not quiet weeping. It's not the <gasps> sort of sorrow. This is loud wailing. This is uncontrolled sobbing. This is, you've seen it on the news, pictures from places like Lebanon and Syria and Israel and wherever else, the Middle Eastern death wail. It's the way you weep. It's the way you cry when you have no hope. When hope is lost, when the pain is overwhelming, when the grief is deeper than it's ever been before. And I, I think there's plenty of evidence in the next couple of verses to suggest that's exactly where Mary Magdalene was. That's the condition of her heart. Because what verses 12 and 13 say is that she was so overcome with grief, her, her weeping is so strong that even in verses 12 and 13, she sees two angels, right? Sitting in the tomb. No idea they're angels. Now, I know that angels can show up among us, the Bible says, unawares. But most of the time, when angels show up in the Bible, everybody knows it. No recognition. It says they were sitting in white. Probably this dazzling appearance, and it's lost on her. She cannot see clearly. Not only that, you get to verse 15. And the first time Jesus speaks to her, she doesn't recognize his voice either. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she just goes on, what, supposing he's the gardener, the keeper of the cemetery. Verse 15 also suggests that her grief may have been so strong, she may have been so overcome, that it never even bothered. And I think there's some subtle humor in this perhaps somewhere, but it never apparently even entered her mind what she was going to do. Because what does she say? She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Apparently, she never thought how she's going to carry a mummified dead body down the road by herself, or where she's going to go, or how she's going to explain it to people. What are you doing carrying a dead body? Or, well, you just, uh, yeah. It's none of that. She is in the moment, and she is stuck in the moment. And, and, and the bottom line behind all of that is simply this, that, that in this scene outside Jesus' tomb, listen to me, there is nowhere, there's nowhere a shred of evidence to suggest that Mary believed, I believe even suspected that Jesus had risen from the dead. I just don't think she sees it coming. She may have known, she may have, his words may have been there somewhere, but she's not living in that reality. And even in fact, look at it. I mean, not even the sight of the empty tomb. She looks in, she sees the body's gone. Angels are sitting there and she's still not seeing it. In fact, I would suggest that the empty tomb only compounded her grief and her confusion. Till verse 16. Till verse 16, where Jesus said to her, Mary. And she said to him, Rabboni, which means master or means teacher. And what I want to show you just in the time that we have left together, and this is really the heart of the message, it's really the heart of the story here of this, this scene outside after Jesus' empty tomb, is that when, is that when Jesus said that, when Jesus called Mary's name, three things happened. 
It's really what I want you to grab hold of this morning. Three things in verses 16, 17, and 18 that happened when Jesus spoke Mary's name. You know, if you think about it, your name, whether you love it or you hate it, you're stuck with it, right? It is the most personal possession you will ever have. It was given to you probably the day you were born. It will be someday etched on your tombstone after you die. It is the one thing that, I know some people change them. Generally speaking, the name you have is the name that you are stuck with. And And whenever it's spoken, can I just say that whenever your name is spoken, it always gets your attention. We've all had the experience of being in a crowded room, multiple conversations going on around us, and somebody in the next circle over says your name, and you're like, wait, they're talking about me, right? Maybe I better go over this conversation because it got my attention. And of course, depending on who says your name and the way in which they say it, it sparks all sorts of emotions and feelings, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure that for the rest of my life, I will never confuse the way my wife says my name with the way my high school football coach said my name. Usually because when he said it, it was surrounded by words I can't say up here or anywhere else. But when people say our name, it generates a response. It speaks to the depth of who we are. And yet this morning, I think we'd probably all agree with with the author who suggests that this one, verse 16... When he says that, quote, never was there a one-word utterance more charged with meaning and emotion than this one. No one's name has ever been called quite the way this was, Mary's was, in this moment. Because the moment Jesus spoke her name, as I said a, a second ago, three incredible things happened. And real quickly, let me just tell you what they are. Again, this is sort of the heart of what we're driving at this morning, number one. The moment Jesus spoke Mary's name, the first thing it did, at least as I see in the passage, is he banished her sorrow. When Jesus spoke Mary's name, the sorrow, the grief in her heart was banished. You know, it's impossible, really, to to know exactly what's going on in the mind and the heart of someone who is grieving. Especially when they're in the depth of grief, grief, in sort of just the blast zone of grief, like Mary Magdalene was in this story. Now, certainly we can gather that most of the grief that Mary is dealing with, most of the weeping and the wailing and moaning, is simply the product that Jesus is gone. And of course, she stayed at the cross till the very end. She witnessed the brutality of his death as well. And so the vast majority of grief is simply that absence, that this one who meant not just so much who meant everything to her, the one who had literally saved her life, who had literally transformed her life, who'd given her a reason to live when life had taken everything else away, was gone. And while I'll admit it is speculation, I still, I can't help but wonder if sometime between Friday night and Sunday morning, as Mary is going through that grieving and coming to grips with what has happened, the question didn't begin to churn in her mind, what now? Where do I go from here? What do I do from here? Who am I now? Because I gave everything to Jesus. My life, my heart. I mean, she said, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, whatever. I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm living for Christ, and now he's gone. Where do I go from here? What become, listen, I've, I've been around enough grieving people to know that the, the question comes up. Who am I now that he's gone? And no longer here to lead me. 
In other words, maybe another way to put it to ask the question is, isn't it at least somewhat possible that in that weekend of grief and sorrow and of Jesus' absence, that Mary wondered, maybe more than once, whether the new life Jesus had said he had given her still applied? Or now because he was gone that that was taken away. Because remember, if you know the story, who she was before Jesus. There's a lot of myth and mythology around Mary. The bottom line is she was possessed by seven demons, which meant she was an outcast of society. She had no connections, no leverage, no reputation except what was bad. Is that who I am after all? I mean, if Jesus isn't here, who am I? Is sin still my master? And what Jesus had told me, just an illusion. Maybe you've been to a place where you wonder the same. If so, you'd be in good company. Because the Bible tells us that even someone so great as the Apostle Paul wrestled with that question. At least in a certain way in Romans chapter 7. In fact, if you want to hold John 20, just go in your Bible for a moment to Romans chapter 7. Because in Romans 7, Paul is as vulnerable and open about it. And and many people look at Paul and say, greatest Christian who ever lived. He's the guy, if you're going to follow Jesus, he's the standard you should shoot for. And, And I think in a lot of ways that's really true. But even Paul struggled with, who am I in Christ? And, and, and what is really the direction and, and the course of my life? And, and in verse, Romans 7, 24, he says this as he goes back and forth between this war and him, between I know who I am in Christ to live for him, but then I do the stuff my flesh wants to do I know I shouldn't do. And he's back and forth. He says this in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Now, the fact is Jesus had already set him free from the body of death. Jesus had already forgiven his sin, but Paul is living in this something that's bringing questions and fears and conflict to mind. But then he says this, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, for Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you, everybody say, free. Free. From the law of sin and death, you've been, Paul said, I have been set free. And here's what I'm saying. Here's all that I'm saying. Is it that that when Jesus spoke Mary's name outside the empty tomb where she'd seen his body laid, I have a hunch that same truth began to flood her heart all over again. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what he said. He said he was going to do it, and he did. And it banished her sorrow, because what did it mean? It meant the new life Jesus had given her still applied. I am a new creation in Christ. I am no longer a slave to my sin nature. I am no longer defined by who I was apart from him. God says so, and Jesus is back to prove it. And when Jesus spoke her name, it banished her sorrow. It all went away. But that's not all. There's a second thing that happened when Jesus spoke Mary's name. First of all, it banished her sorrow. Second of all, and in some ways all three of these things are sort of knotted up together, but a second thing that happened when Jesus spoke Mary's name is he affirmed her identity. He affirmed her true spiritual, in God's eyes, identity. You know, for just a moment, hopefully you're back in John chapter 20. I want you to hold John 20. I want you to go back to John chapter 10. You have your Bible, go back for a moment to John chapter 10, where actually in John chapter 10, we looked at this a couple of times over the past few weeks in our word picture study of, of, of ways that Jesus introduced or revealed himself to us. And in John chapter 10, there's sort of two images working at once, two word pictures. Jesus talks about himself as the door, and he talks about himself as well as the good shepherd. 
And again, keep in mind, this is all said pre-cross, pre-empty tomb. And in John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus said this to his followers, to his people, his disciples. We would be safe to assume that perhaps Mary Magdalene was there to hear it when he said it. And he said this, uh, John 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, because he's the shepherd and we're the sheep, and where he keeps us he calls the sheep fold, the sheep pen, but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his what? And he calls his own sheep by what? And he leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice, because he knows their name. Now go to John 20 again. Verse 16. Mary is overcome with grief. She doesn't understand what's happened. She's confused even though Jesus is standing right there and spoken to her. But then Jesus said her what? name Mary and she got it right then now around here we call things like that coincidences right <laughs> Jesus said it over here and then he did it over there but we know that's not a coincidence we know that's not accidental that is the literal living breathing fulfillment in John 20 of Jesus words back in John 10 and, and even though he'd already spoken to her in verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It was the moment he said her name outside the empty tomb. Jesus knew who, Mary knew who he was. That Mary remembered and understood what had been accomplished. Because when Jesus spoke her name, it affirmed her identity as someone who truly and eternally belonged to him. And not only that, can I tell you, he didn't just affirm her identity. If you keep reading in this passage, as we're going to do in just a second, he actually expanded her identity as well. He spoke her name. She knew it's him. He's back. He's my Savior. It all still applies. But in verse 17, he, he expands her identity as well. Because what he says is this. He says, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, stop clinging to me for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But he says, go to my brethren. That is brothers and sisters. Now that's a big deal, okay? Everybody say that's a big deal. All right, let me tell you why. Because Jesus had never said that before. He'd never referred to any of his people that way before. In fact, the night before he died, and we're not going to turn there, but you can look it up later, John 15, Jesus said this. He said, until now I've called you servants. But tonight I call you friends. I would, would you agree with me? That's a good move. That's a step in the right direction. But that's as close as Jesus had ever described their relationship to that point. You're my friends. Now what's he saying in verse 17? Go tell my family. My family. My brother's and sisters, listen, friends come and go. So do servants. Family is forever, whether you like it or not. Family is forever. And he said, I want you to go to my family and tell them that I'm about to go to my father and their father and my God and their God. Mary, you are not only now my follower, not only my friend, you are in my family because of what 
I have done. It suggests a relationship. It speaks of a relationship that lasts forever. So when Jesus spoke her name, first of all, he banished her sorrow. Second of all, he affirmed her identity. Third of all, and this is right there in verses 17 and 18. It's the last thing we're going to see here in the passage this morning. When Jesus spoke Mary's name, having affirmed her identity, he defined her destiny. When Jesus spoke Mary's name, he defined her destiny. I don't know about you, but in my Bible, when Jesus speaks, the way John writes in verse 17, he sounds, we might say, very un-Jesus-like, okay? When he says, she says, he says her name, she responds, teacher, master, and then the next thing out of, according to John, Jesus' mouth is, stop clinging to me. (laughs) Jesus, what's going on here? It sounds harsh. It sounds unkind. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, I go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. But trust me when I say that there's nothing harsh in Jesus' tone here. He wasn't being unkind. He wasn't holding himself distant or aloof. See, the word that that John uses there for clinging to me means to clutch, to grip. And it's because Mary was doing exactly what you would have done if you realized he was back from the dead, embracing him. Saying, basically, you got away once, not happening again, right? And that's what she's thinking. He's back. Again, if you knew someone who came back from the dead, that's where you'd be as well. And what Jesus says here, it's, it's more gentle than it sounds in the text, is Mary, now's not the time. I understand, but now is not the time. Why? First, because he wasn't going anywhere. I have not yet ascended to my father. I'm still here, and you're going to see me again. You're going to see me soon. You're going to see me several times. You'll be seeing me again. But second, and more importantly than that, the reason Jesus says, hey, now is not the time for embracing. Now is not the time to cling to me to make sure I don't go away again. More importantly, it's because he had an assignment for her, right? Look at verse 17. He had an assignment for Mary in this moment. Stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but, everybody say, go. Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. In other words, Mary, go tell the crew that I'm back. That I was dead and I live. The stone was there, it's rolled away. I was crucified, but I have resurrected and, and while soon I will be going back to my father, I will be ascending to him to my rightful place at the father's right hand. Mary, right now it's time to spread the word. Right now it's time to take what you've seen, to take what you've heard, and go let people know. In fact, Mary, here's what I'm doing for you right now. I'm promoting you, okay? You were a follower, now you're a messenger. In fact, Mary, you're the first Christian evangelist and missionary in all of recorded history. Go. Go tell my disciples. Go tell my family. Because they are now my family. That I live. Because Mary, this is your life from now on. Spreading the news of who I am and what I've done is your destiny. And in verse 18, Mary did exactly as Jesus said. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. This morning, I just want to suggest 
that one of the reasons why what happened in this scene that morning outside the empty tomb matters to us is because the Bible says that as a believer in Jesus Christ, he knows your name too. Did you know that? He knows your name. Isaiah 43.1, I know it's Old Testament, it still applies. Isaiah 43.1 says this, do not fear for I have redeemed you. Been redeemed? Anybody here this morning been redeemed? Okay. Do not fear I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. Would you think about that for a moment? I know it's 9.15. Think about it for a moment anyway. The eternal, almighty, infinite creator God knows your name. He hears your prayers. He knows your troubles. He's the giver of your joys. He knows your name. He says that you belong to him and that he has a plan for your life, one to banish the sorrow of who you were without him, one that affirms your identity as belonging to his forever family and a plan which defines your destiny to go and to tell and to proclaim the risen Christ for the rest of your life on earth as a witness to the fact that Jesus is alive. In other words, what makes this post-resurrection appearance of Christ unique, and it also happens to be the big idea of today's message, is that the empty tomb, listen to me, the empty tomb tells us who we really are. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ tells us who we really are. No longer servants, not even just friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ, children of the Heavenly Father, entrusted with the greatest message that's ever been presented to planet Earth. And what was given to you, this is how revival works. Once he revives you, you take it to somebody else and God can revive their heart as well. Father, help us to understand this morning. Help us understand, Lord, not what I've said, not three or four points in a big idea, but the living reality, the eternal truth that because Jesus not only rose, but because Jesus lives, so do we. Father, that that in calling us to salvation, you did so by name. It wasn't, hey, y'all, come follow me. Hey, everyone, believe in Jesus. No, you called us by name, and you said, I've redeemed you. You are mine. And as such, as yours, Father, we're in your service. We belong to your family. You have commissioned us. You've told us what life is now really all about. Father, in the days to come, we're going to encounter people. In the hours to come, we're going to encounter people who don't know that truth. They don't have that hope. They don't realize it, but they are no better off than Mary was when she came to the tomb that Sunday morning. And we have, you've given us the news they need to hear, that he lives, that Jesus lives. Father, in your grace, give us the ability to walk in the light of that truth this week, this day, even in the hour to come. And Father, open our mouths to speak and say, I have, not with physical eyes, but eyes of faith, I've seen the Lord. And you can too. In Jesus' name, amen.